It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Global attitudes towards recreational drugs are softening, but not in Japan, where harsh laws are mixed with strong social stigma. The country doesn't have much crime related to drugs, but there's also no sympathy or help for those who get mixed up with them. And today, tourists in Australia are making a last-minute dash up Uluru, a stunning rock formation that will close to the public tomorrow. It's a dangerous climb and a disrespectful one. The site's Aboriginal owners have always viewed it as a sacred place. First up, though. When asked whether he should request a Brexit extension from the European Union beyond the October 31st deadline, Prime Minister Boris Johnson gave a flippant but frank answer. I'd rather be dead in a ditch. But last week, Mr. Johnson was forced by Parliament to make that request. Today, the EU is meeting to discuss whether to grant Britain the extension, whether for weeks or months, it's unclear. Mr. Johnson, meanwhile, has a new plan and a new date to trumpet. He's aiming for a general election on December 12th. Having failed to cobble together consensus in time, Mr. Johnson finds himself in the same position as his predecessor, Theresa May calling a snap election to get enough parliamentary support for the revised deal he's hammered out with the EU. Just like Mrs May's, though, that is a risky move. But Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, has made a bold, if rather cynical, move. Anne McElvoy is a senior editor at The Economist and a long-time haunter of the halls of power. He has called for an election on the 12th of December, a snap election, and he hopes that will split his opponents. But he's also said that that's the condition of continuing to debate the deal that he brought back from Brussels. He's created another cliff edge, having just missed the one that he set up himself for leaving on October the 31st, do or die. He's now saying election in December, do or die another day. So how is it that we've ended up in in this situation then? We've ended up in this situation, Jason, because Mr. Johnson was forced by Parliament to ask for an extension from the EU. He couldn't get his deal through by October the 31st. And many in Parliament are raising questions about it. There are lots of questions that you can raise about that deal and about what would follow from it and whether it would still leave a bit of a chink of a door open to a possible no-deal Brexit, which is what a lot of MPs who are worried about it want to prevent. So it's like that game of truth or dare. He needs to keep his deal moving along the line by forcing the other side to agree to something that they never really wanted to agree to, and now he has moved that to a general election. He knows that splits the opposition, particularly the Labour Party, who are not polling well at the moment. 
And he's also creating another timeline that if they don't do what he wants by a certain date, well, he'll pull back from this entire deal. Feels like a bit of an empty threat. The trouble is, people don't really know where he's serious and when he isn't. And he is gaming that uncertainty very well indeed. He has the momentum at the moment. So the motivations now now seem clear. How about the likelihood? Will, will he get the election he, he's now asking for? That path still looks very difficult for him. The road to a general election is blocked under the fixed term. Parliaments actually need two-thirds majority in Parliament. You might be able to find a way around it. But you can only do that if the Labour opposition, the main opposition, play ball. And although they are very split on the risks or possible benefits of breaking for an, an early vote... The view that I'm hearing as Jeremy Corbyn is out and about talking today is that they will not approve a general election unless Boris Johnson takes no deal off the table. I think he is unlikely to want to do. And Labour MPs are being instructed by the leadership, as things stand, to abstain in a vote on Monday, but till they can kind of vote no if they want to. So it's a bit messy. And that reflects the fact that the Labour opposition itself is split on the way forward. Now, you've been spending some time in Westminster this week. What, what's been the reaction? What's been the mood about this, this turn of, of events? It's extremely febrile. And let me give you an example. I was sitting down with Philip Hammond, who was until recently the Chancellor, so the finance minister of the British system, a very senior figure. And we were talking about whether there would be a general election before the end of the year. He was giving me his reasons. This is someone who's been an MP for decades, why this would be such a risk. And someone in the room looked at their, their watch and up flashed a message saying Boris Johnson was going to go for that Christmas election. I had then previously seen Sajid Javid, now the Chancellor, who was pre-briefing his budget. He thought he was going to be giving a budget in November. So the previous Chancellor of the Exchequer and the present one, neither of them had any idea earlier in the day what the Prime Minister was going to announce in the evening. And that's an indication of exactly how febrile, how dramatic and unreliable the mood is. And I would just say one other thing. A lot of MPs, while they may have different views about Boris Johnson, they're genuinely split about whether it's such a good idea to race for this election. It does mean he has to win strongly in previous Labour seats that have voted to leave. And they have not had a history of voting Conservative let alone voting for, shall we say, a rather posh prime minister from an entirely different social background. It's quite a gamble. The way a lot of this plays out is, is, is dependent on whether the EU actually grants the extension that's been requested. Do you think it will? Well, we should hear a reply either later today on Friday or the latest on Monday uh, from the EU. I think there's a feeling that they're waiting to see how things are going back in Westminster. So it's a bit of a chicken and the egg, that one. They are expected to agree and possibly to something that's been called a flextension, which sounds like an awkward yoga position, which is that you would have that three-month extension that's been talked about, but it could be broken if Boris Johnson could get some progress earlier, which I think is devoutly to be wished from a point of view in, in Brussels. But even that is not so certain. We know that Emmanuel Macron, for instance, has been opposed to a longer extension. He thinks that the, the Brits are just very likely to, to dither and, and to string this out and that what we need is to be presented with our own do-or-die moment and, and come to a view. So there'll certainly still be an argument there. My guess is that they will try to 
accommodate the position that keeps that newly negotiated deal on the table. They really can't face going back and doing another one. But they also want to know when this world of pain is going to end. And we should know that by Monday. And then the inevitable crystal ball question. (laughs) Suppose Mr. Johnson gets the general election he wants to, to secure the backing from the public for Brexit. Would he get it? I think the closer he is to actually saying, here is a day that has the B word on it, this was Brexit day, the better for him electorally, whatever one thinks about the wisdom or otherwise of Brexit. His play is, I need to get a majority. It has just been terrible for both him and his predecessor, Theresa May, to try and do any business in Parliament without a workable majority. So he's prepared to take that gamble. I think it really depends on the conditions on which that Brexit day happens. If it does, he really then has to go out and win votes from Labour leave constituencies. He's going to lose votes from Remain backers. He's got to really go into parts of the country where the Conservatives have not won for many decades, if at all. It's a high-wire act. It's Boris Johnson. It always is. And thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Jason. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. Until earlier this summer, Junnosuke Taguchi was mainly known as a former member of a popular Japanese boy band. But in June, he was arrested with his girlfriend after police found a pinch of marijuana and some paraphernalia in his apartment. Mr. Taguchi appeared in public, soberly dressed, offering a torrent of apologies. He said, I promise I will never touch illegal drugs, including marijuana, and become involved in crime. He then prostrated himself outside the police station, forehead touching the ground. He said he would suspend his singing career and focus on regaining the public's trust. Unlike in other countries around the world, where marijuana laws are becoming more liberal, in Japan, use of the drug is illegal and carries heavy social stigma. Well, that tells us that Japan takes a very dim attitude to marijuana, but any drug. And there's a long history of pop stars, actors, people in the public eye who have been arrested and convicted. David McNeil reports from Japan for The Economist. And you've seen several cases of that recently. The most famous uh, is Pierre Taki, who's an actor and musician. He was arrested for taking cocaine recently. And uh, in response, Sega, the video game 
company pulled a game in which he voices a character. Sony Music stopped sales of his music. NHK, the country's largest broadcaster, scrubbed all his scenes from a TV series, including those that had already been aired. And there's lots of cases like that where people's careers are destroyed after taking a small amount of drugs recreationally. So I think that the attitude, the public attitude and the official attitude to drugs is quite harsh. So why is it that drug use has this strong social stigma in Japan? Well, I think that one reason is because they have had epidemics in Japan, particularly of meth after the war in the 1950s. They had something like, it's estimated, about half a million meth addicts. And that's a hangover, really, from the Second World War when meth was was widely distributed to soldiers, people fighting in the war. And I think the the hangover from that remains. But I think there's also other reasons. One is that the Americans who occupied this country from 1945 to the early 1950s introduced a lot of their anti-drug laws, particularly the anti-cannabis law. And Japan has never really reformed that law. And so the penalties um, can be quite harsh. Yes, so the penalty in Japan for marijuana users is possession is punishable with up to five years in prison. If there's an attempt to profit from distribution, it's seven years. And if you're a proper dealer of marijuana, you face 10 years in prison. For drugs like cocaine, the penalties are even harsher. And they tend to enforce those laws when they think that people are habitual users. And the the police really take the prosecution of drugs seriously. Detectives are dispatched to the homes of pot smokers in the countryside. Every summer, there are stories in the paper about the police. They go to Hokkaido in the northern countryside and they pull up wild cannabis, thousands and thousands of wild cannabis plants, and incinerate them in bonfires out of fear that people are going to start smoking them. So there is a very, very harsh attitude towards even soft drugs in Japan. And so do you think all of that is aligned with what the people themselves think, or is this just a a sort of hard government line? I think that the public in general has been socialized, if you like, to think that drug users deserve harsh punishment. There isn't much sympathy for people like Junosuke Taguchi when they get caught. They see drug use as a lapse in moral rectitude. For example, I teach at a university uh, in Tokyo and the subject of drugs, recreational drugs, comes up because 18 to 21 year olds would be if the statistics are correct, the prime candidates for smoking marijuana. But in general, you don't get much sense that people in that age group do smoke a lot of drugs. And what's really surprising to me when you talk to them is that they have very little sympathy for other people who are caught taking drugs. There was a case about uh, 10 years ago of students at Keio University, which is a private university here, of a handful of students being caught smoking marijuana and the president of the university and the management of the university apologized on behalf of the students. And I think that most of the people who I teach at least would sympathize with that, sympathize with the management. They wouldn't have much sympathy for the students. And so the, the public policy goal is, is achieved, I, I presume. There is, there is not much drug use because of all this stigma. No, there isn't much drug use. There were 14, I think, cases of um, arrests with heroin-related crimes uh, last year. Cocaine tends to be seen as a drug taken by uh, entertainers. That said, there is a growth in the last couple of years in the number of people being arrested on cannabis-related charges. There was a survey a couple of years ago which said that something like 1% of the population has tried it. Now, that's very small for people in the UK or Ireland, for example. But uh, in Japan, that was considered alarming. 
And I think one reason why the authorities are going after people like Taguchi and his girlfriend is because they fear the influence they have. They fear that marijuana is becoming trendy. It's becoming something that young people might be attracted to. So if the government is taking such a strong hand in in punishing, is it doing much in the way of rehabilitation to, to get people off drugs who end up on them? Well, not very much, certainly not according to experts. Once people are addicted, they usually stay that way because it's hard to get help. And when I asked, for example, I interviewed a justice ministry official and asked him about whether that was going to change. He said no. The softening of laws around the world, which is happening, as we see in America and Canada and so on, he said that that sort of thing has no place in Japan, that Japan's drug laws work and they're supported by ordinary people. David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. In the heart of Australia's red centre stands Uluru, an imposing, isolated mass of weathered rock, over two miles long and the colour of rust. The monolith is among the country's most iconic landmarks, drawing tourists from Australia and beyond to its remote location in the Northern Territory. It's what we call the heart of Australia. And I think everyone agrees on that, not just Aboriginal people, but just about everyone thinks of it as the cultural heart of Australia. Mick Gooda is a former Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander social justice commissioner. It changes colours during the day, it changes colours from the morning to the afternoon. And as an Aboriginal person, I'm, I'm sure most people go there just get overwhelmed by the sense of the aura of the place, of Uluru. It's so, so important for all of us. But it's also deeply sacred to its Aboriginal owners, the Anangu people. They had lived at the site for thousands of years, then, in the late 1800s, white explorers stumbled upon it and named it Ayers Rock, after a colonial leader. It wasn't until 1985 that Uluru was handed back to its first people. The Aboriginal owners now manage the land in partnership with the government. Tomorrow, on the 34th anniversary of that handover, a ban on climbing the rock will come into effect. It's prompted visitors to flock to Central Australia to scale the rock before it's too late. To the traditional owners, Uluru isn't just a beautiful place, it's a sacred one, a spiritual one as well. Eleanor Whitehead is our Australia and New Zealand correspondent, based in Sydney. It's not only a rock, it's a living thing, and it's where the spirits of their creation ancestors reside. So it's sort of out of respect for that cultural history that they ask people not to tread on it. It's also very steep and it's surprisingly dangerous. A lot of people have died trying to reach the summit, often in very, very hot conditions. And the traditional owners, who are called the Arnagu, say they feel a responsibility for those lives which are lost on their land. So visitors have already been asked not to climb the rock. There are signs all around its base saying it isn't permitted under the traditional owner's law. But people have sort of continued to go up there and some of them have behaved quite badly, quite disrespectfully littering, stripping. In one case, a man played golf shots off the summit. So they're going to be stopped from doing that after tomorrow. They'll still be able to visit the national park to hike around the base of the rock, but just not to climb up its pathway to the summit. 
And so is this a fairly uncontroversial move, you know, stopping people playing golf on, on sacred lands? Theoretically, it ought to be. Uluru was handed back to its traditional owners in 1985. So they own the land, they leased it back to the government and they manage it together with the government. So they get to decide how it's preserved. And they gave people two years warning. They first announced that this was going to happen in 2017 so that people would have time to get used to the idea. But not everyone is happy about it. There's been this huge rush of tourists, record numbers heading up the rock. And people give different reasons for why they want to climb it before it's closed. Some kind of feel like the rock is a national icon, which belongs to everyone. And some kind of say, oh, well, this is permissible until the ban is absolutely enforced. And there was one campaigner who appealed to Australia's Human Rights Commission saying that the rule was discriminatory against millions of Australians. But that complaint was actually dismissed. Well, what does that rush to get up there, despite the same sort of plea from Aboriginals not to do so, what does that tell you about attitudes towards Aboriginal culture? Not everyone obviously feels the same way about this, but some of the Indigenous people I interviewed said, looking at this long line of people that are snaking their way up this sacred site, trampling all over it while they still can, they view it as being powerfully symbolic of the uh, disregard that's been shown to traditional owners, to their culture and their wishes and demands over the years. I think there's a willful blindness in Australia about Aboriginal culture and how important it is. In the middle of Hyde Park, in the middle of Sydney, there's a war memorial where there's legislation you cannot walk on the steps. I walk past that every day when I was working in the Human Rights Commission. There's not once I felt compelled or even had a desire to stand or walk on that because it was a sacred place for someone else. And I respected that. I just wonder why Australians can't respect the Anangu people, the Aboriginal people of that area when they say we don't want you to walk on it because it's sacred to us. And I work with people from Mutajuli, which is a community at the foot of Uluru, and these old women told me that if non-Aboriginal people are going to live in this country, they've got to understand our culture. It's part of their culture. And I think people will start to understand that more now that they, they're not just going out there to climb. They'll appreciate the aura, the power of Uluru. While it's obvious that more people have been climbing it recently as a kind of last-ditch effort to get up there, there is quite a lot of optimism that these efforts to educate tourists about Aboriginal culture and educate more generally school children in Australian classrooms as well have been working and people are gradually starting to show more respect. And for a long time, the traditional owners at Uluru have said that they've felt pressured to keep the climb open. So they say that this is an occasion for celebration it's a kind of sign of agency over their own land that all this time, 34 years after it was returned to them, they are able to take this decision to close down the walk. So it's sort of a controversial chapter in their history, which is closing. Eleanor, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday.
I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out.